0: Hello everybody. Thank you for listening. This is Jacob Parnell. I am the preaching minister at the Tri-Valley Church of Christ in Livermore, California, where I've been for the past 11 years. I was the youth minister first, and then I transitioned into the role of pulpit minister about five years ago. In 2017, I attended a one-week intensive program in San Francisco with Francis Chan's house church network called We Are Church. And I came home with a lot of information, a lot of conviction, but not a lot of direction. How do their practices translate to an established church like ours that isn't ready to completely jettison its church building, its paid ministers, and its creature comforts? Is it an all-or-nothing model? Is there things that we can learn? What am I supposed to do now was the big question that I came home with. Well, in this session today, I want to share some of my experiences that week as well as some of the principles and practices that I learned from Chan's House Church Network. I'll also talk about what I took home Uh, which of their practices have impacted the 70-year-old California Church of Christ where I serve. First, a little bit of background information on Chan's We Are Church House Church Network. Francis Chan, you may already know this, but in case you don't, he was the founding pastor of Cornerstone Church down in Simi Valley, California. He started a church of just a handful of people that grew into a church of thousands. He was this extremely popular conference speaker and author. Uh, He wrote best-selling books like Crazy Love. Forgotten God, erasing hell, uh, multiply. At some point, he stopped believing in the big church model. Francis Chan wrote a book called Letters to the Church, which details the reasons for his leaving Cornerstone. And in the first chapter of the book, he writes this. The Bible tells us that every member of the body has a gift necessary to the functioning of the church. When I looked at what went on in Cornerstone, I saw a few other people and me using our gifts— While thousands just came and sat in the sanctuary for an hour and a half and then went home. The way we had structured the church was stunting people's growth in the whole body, uh, and the whole body was weaker for it. So Francis Chan quit. He left the big church, the big stage, and the big salary behind. After a few months of shadowing ministers in India and China, Francis and his family landed in San Francisco where his brother lived. It's like, okay, we're going to be somewhere, we may as well be there because we have a free place to stay. But they started doing house church. And then a pastor from Menlo Park named Kevin Kim was feeling the same way about big church. And so he connected with Chan and they started doing house church together. Well, their house church turned into two house churches, which turned into four house churches. And by the time I got to spend a week with them in September of 2017, they were a network of 14 house churches with 200 people and five elders. And so many people were interested in what Chan and his group were doing, because he was such a popular speaker and author, that they created a program called the Church Intensive, where people could come shadow them for a week and learn about their practices. And this is how I became familiar with the group. The Church Intensive was about half classroom-style teaching sessions and about half observing the church's gatherings. We'd sit in on their prayer meetings, we'd go to their Sunday worship in the members' homes. Uh, we go do outreach ministry with them where they were involved in the streets of of San Fran. And it was funny. On the application to participate in the intensive program, one of the questions was, Francis Chan does a lot of traveling and may not be on site the week that you're there. Do you still want to participate if you don't get to meet him? (laughs) And I wondered if this question was a test to weed out any of the the Chan fans. That's what they call them. People would just show up because they're they're fans of Francis and they want to say that they shook his hand or, you know, trained with him or something like that. But it's funny, on this application, I knew that the right answer to the question was, no, I'm I'm here for the learning, not because I want to meet some celebrity pastor. And so that's what I put. Like, fine, if he's there, cool, if not, whatever. But I have to admit, I would have been a little bit disappointed if I didn't actually get to spend time with him. And in case you're wondering, I did get to see Francis Chan three times while i was there twice at prayer meetings and then on the last day of the program our whole cohort got to eat chinese food with him and talk about our reactions to what we'd seen and heard and learned all week side note by the way the church intensive content is free online like since i went there they put it all online it's in the form of youtube training videos so uh, the web address for that if you care is www.churchintensive.com/church-intensive Dash online. Or if you can't remember all that, just go to Google and type in We Are Church San Francisco. You should be able to find the link. A year or so after I spent the week with them, Chan put out the book Letters to the Church, which I mentioned earlier. And it's basically the one-week intensive course in book format. So lucky you, now you can have your own virtual church intensive experience from the comfort of your own home. But you're going to have to provide your own Chinese food, and you won't get to meet Francis Chan like I did. <laughs> let me really quickly, let me go quickly through the 10 practices that we, our church, have committed themselves to. These are the things that they, they did while I was there. We got to observe them. Then I'll share with you some of the things that stood out to me from my experiences the week that I, that I got to spend time with them. Uh, so this group firmly believes that they are doing church and faith and discipleship using a better model than the one that most of us are used to. The main part of the week was communicating and explaining what they're doing and why it's better than the big church program, uh, the model, the senior pastor model. Any of the, the a lot of their leaders had come out of those kinds of backgrounds and they're like, ah, just, it's it's a broken system and we want to fix it. So, really quickly, and I won't take a ton of time to go into any of these, but if you want, you can read about them in the book, Letters to the Church. Uh, this starts on page 176, but here are 10 practices that their church is committed to. Number one, daily Bible reading. Each member reads through the whole Bible in order every year. Sunday morning lessons and discussions in their, their worship time are based on the readings that people have all read through in the past week. So everybody's on the same page. Number two, house church. They don't have church buildings or campuses. They don't do paid staff and gatherings are limited in number by how many people can fit into someone's home. That's something they thought was Very important and uh, kind of a biblical model. Number three, everyone is discipled. There's an expectation in their group that the people in the church will know what's going on with you. So you can't hide. You can't pop in once a month. You can't fall through the cracks. And they say that's something that they make clear on the front end because a lot of people don't like that. They like to do church on their own terms and they like their privacy, but that doesn't really uh, present itself as an option. With their group, so that's three. Everyone is discipled, and then number four is everyone disciples. Similarly, you're not just under the care of elders or pastors or whatever. As you are being discipled, you are also to disciple someone else. And one outcome of this is that they avoid classes or programs that make people feel like discipleship is not needed. And that's something I hadn't really thought about, but uh, if biblical teaching comes from following someone else's example or just life-on-life encounters, then you may not need to gather everybody in a classroom and teach things because they're learning them in a one-on-one format, which is more rich and probably a lot stickier. Anyway, number five, uh, fifth principle that they, or the fifth practice that they're committed to is multiplying leaders. They say that leaders can only faithfully shepherd about 10 to 20 people before folks start falling through the cracks. So, you multiply leaders, you get more people shepherded in a proper way that they ought to be. Number six, everyone exercises their gifts. They ask this challenging question. Have we made our churches so professional and impressive that only the polished few can contribute? That's a challenging question we should ask ourselves. But they say, nope, everyone exercises their gifts. There's a job for everybody. We're going to get you involved. There's no point person. There's no figurehead. There's no celebrity, senior pastor. Everyone exercises their gifts. Number seven, regular multiplication of churches. So when a church starts, remember house church, a house group, when it begins, it understands that is it is going to divide into two churches at the end of December. So every December, they say, if you were a house church and you've grown and you've met some neighbors, you've drawn in some people, that church is now going to become two churches. So throughout the year, they're training up leadership. And uh, they say that this was a kind of a big problem because people get really cozy with their groups, as we all know. But there's this understanding at the front end that this group may be great. It may be the best year of your life, but it's going to split uh, for the sake of multiplying and, and reaching more people for Christ. Number eight, they're committed to simple gatherings. Again, there's no all-time preacher; not one person does all the teaching and talking. There's no attractional stuff, uh, you know, no themed events, no car shows. Just, just Jesus and His church. Number nine, they're committed to sharing of possessions. People uh, they think get too attached to this life by uh, they teach people not to get attached to this life by practicing a loose grip on. Our stuff. So you share your car, you share your house, you think of the things that you have as something that can help kingdom work and you make it available to others as needed. And this practice, they say, keeps our attention more fixed on eternity rather than the here and now. And number 10, assume missions. And what that means is that everyone is a missionary. I got to experience this. After I worshiped with the house church on Sunday morning, I went with them as they knocked on every single neighbor's door, On their streets, probably like 25 houses, just checking in with them and asking, how can we pray for you? How are you doing? They they say that this, where I live, is my mission field, and everybody is expected to participate in that. Again, that was a quick blast through the 10 practices that they've committed to, and you might have questions about how that plays out. And I could talk for a long, long time on each of those things, but to do so would take... I mean, it would take a week, like the week that I spent in San Francisco. And it would give you a much clearer picture of how this plays out. But for now, I just want to share with you some of the things that I observed that stood out to me. And while it won't completely fill in all the gaps, it will hopefully paint a pretty good picture. Uh, And then you may or may not feel really bad, like, oh, man, that's awesome. I should do more of that. But we'll get to that, too. Well, there's (laughs) there's a way to deal with that that I'll talk about more in the end as well. But for now, okay, the things that impacted me. One was the steak versus spaghetti exercise. Early on in the week, they did an exercise with us in one of our you know, classroom group settings, and it kind of explains their premise of the move to do church differently. This is a simple and eye-opening exercise that you can do on your own, and I encourage you to do this on your own or with the leaders from your church. So on a whiteboard or you know like a big piece of paper, everybody can see, you make two columns. In the first column, Write down all of the things that people expect from your church. So they say, okay, we listed things like they want great music in worship. They want a dynamic speaker who will preach for a certain length of time. They want things like age specific ministries, you know, youth ministry, senior ministry, young adults ministry. They want childcare. They want a clean and temperature controlled church building. They expect uh, parking and coffee, and just because this is what every church has. These are the things we have. This is the things that people have come to expect. So anyway, you make a big, long list of those things. That's column number one. And then in the second column, they asked us to brainstorm all of the things that we could think of that God commanded Christians to do. So we said, okay, we got to work uh, listing things like you know, love God, love your neighbor, care for widows and orphans, make disciples of all nations, Forgive one another. Bear one another's burdens. We listed all the one another's. I think we just put one another's and there's, you know, like 30 or more of them. So shorthand. But anyway, we had this big long list. This is what God wants his church to be up to. And then they asked this question. What would upset people more if the church didn't provide the things on the first list or on the second list? If I'm honest, my people would say... Uh, it's just not church unless there's a sermon. I've heard people say it doesn't feel like church if we don't have any uplifting songs. And maybe yours is the same way. And to bring the exercise home, they tell this parable. Imagine you go to a restaurant and you order a steak. The waitress comes back and brings you a big plate of spaghetti. And she says, this is the best spaghetti in town. I really think you're going to like it. Would you be happy with this fancy spaghetti, is the question. And the answer is, of course you wouldn't. You would say, that's not what I ordered. This spaghetti may very well be fantastic, but I asked you to bring me steak. And the point is, churches give God our best spaghetti sometimes, but it's not what God ordered. God ordered steak. And based on the things that some churches spend their time, their money, and their focus on, you wouldn't even know that they have steak on the menu so their goal as a church is to try and focus more on the stake that God requested disciple making doing good works practices that lead to a greater capacity to love that was an interesting exercise that kind of kicked off the week one of the ways that their philosophy played out of how to do this was their emphasis on the importance of prayer and one way I saw that was in their prayer meetings Every Sunday, the elders meet with the pastors, which those are the house church leaders, and they get together at 7 o'clock. This is like our first moment of the We Are Church cohort. I'd get up early, drive from my house into San Francisco in the dark, get to the right building, show up. Everybody's tired, drinking coffee, and 7 o'clock, they show up for two hours to pray and equip. And they say they do that every Sunday. Elders with pastors meeting, teaching, praying together. And the Sunday I were there, that they were... Uh, The Sunday that I was there, they were talking about their own personal experiences with the manifestations of the Holy Spirit, which was a very diverse representation. There was all these people who had different experiences and some had no supernatural experiences, but they were talking about this because it was something that came up in their church and they said, you know what, let's just study this. Let's talk about this together and then let's pray about it. Prayer is very important to this group. And you might be thinking, well, yeah, but prayer is important to all churches and my church included. But I was convicted about the sporadic nature of my own prayer life after seeing how much time that they actually dedicate to prayer. In most worship services that I've been to, prayer is like punctuation. It's what we start and end things with. But the meat and potatoes is our our songs and our speeches, you know, the preacher's sermon, our communion talks, announcements. But for them, prayer is the meat and potatoes. Rob Zabala, who is one of the church's elders and our guide for the week, he told us a story about being at a Christian conference uh, with Francis Chan. And someone stuck a camera and a microphone in Francis' face, and he said, hey, can you give an encouraging message for the teenagers, for our you know, YouTube channel or whatever? And Chan said, yeah, yeah, encouraging word. Sure, hold on a minute. And he says he immediately got down on his knees, and he spent a couple minutes praying first. He was just going to give like a two-sentence soundbite kind of thing. But Francis didn't just want to give him the Francis wisdom. He wanted to seek the Lord first, to listen for what God might be wanting to say through him. So that story stuck with me. And here's a quote from uh, Chan's book that will illustrate how the high priority that he gives to prayer. Francis says this, I told my staff to let me know if they were not praying at least an hour a day. This way I could replace them with someone who would. That may sound harsh, But prayer is that critical. That was what he said. Think about that. How well would you do if that was the standard at your church? I may be revealing something here. You might be like, I do that, Jacob, and you should too. (laughs) Again, I'm convicted of that. But I have to admit, I, for one, I say that I don't meet that standard. And I've rarely had another leader at my church hold me accountable to how much time I spend praying for the congregation. I have been held accountable for things like how much money I am spending and uh, what I'm spending my money on and whether or not I've contacted this person or the things I receive criticism on are the things on that first whiteboard column. But people don't check in as much about are you spending time on your knees? Are you seeking God's will in an intentional and not just implied way? So that stuck with me. Another thing is that it was evident that they took seriously their principle of sharing possessions. There was a lot of sharing going on in a really inspiring way. It was clear that the church placed a high priority on using your possessions as a means to further the gospel. And more than one person that I met from the church talked to me about how they were converting rooms in their home into a sleeping quarters for someone in case they meet them and they can disciple them, and in case they need a place to live. So the family that I worshipped with on that Sunday morning, they showed us how they were in the process of converting what was their home office into a bedroom for a homeless person. Not because they knew a homeless person, but in case they encountered somebody who was willing to be discipled and needed a place to live. It was really refreshing and inspiring to see how they were thinking communally and missionally about such a big possession like their home. You know, when I first started preaching, I, I set aside a week each year to go away to a cabin by myself, where I would plan my preaching calendar for the coming year, I'd choose sermon series titles and and texts, I'd outline the weeks, I'd fill in calendar pages, and hopefully I would come back with a plan of what I was going to preach for the next 12 months. Well, We Are Church doesn't need a whole week to plan their preaching and teaching calendar because, like I said, every member just reads the Bible at the same pace each year. In January, they start in Genesis. They get to Jesus around September, and after Revelation 22, they say, Happy New Year, every single year. This is something that they're all committed to. I saw church members doing their Bible readings while I was there. Some people talk about how they get up at 5 a.m. each day to start their readings, but not only that, they text their thoughts and their questions to other folks who are also up at 5 a.m., They're just communicating and sharing texts and and their reactions to the scriptures they're reading every day, in the morning, when it's dark. Kind of crazy. You can tell I'm not a 5 a.m. type of person. Uh, And Sunday house church sermons were just people reflecting on their readings for the week. It's so simple. If you're a preacher and your church started doing that, how many hours of your week would you gain back? Or, let me put it this way, would you even have a job? You don't need a paid preacher if people are ready to preach and teach. Think of this. Currently, how many different subgroups in your church are studying different sections of Scripture? Like the different age-specific ministries. You know, in your church, in my church, at any given time, the kids might be in Exodus. The teens are studying through the Gospel of John. The Wednesday night adults group is doing an apologetics series. The men's group is in Daniel. The women's group is in Ruth. The senior saints are studying Methuselah. Just kidding, not Methuselah, but maybe they are. The point is, we are kind of all over the place. And maybe that's okay, but there's something very attractive to everyone hearing from the same part of God's word at the same time. And this is definitely conducive to their commitment to multiplying leaders. If it's just assumed that everyone has been reading and reflecting on the same scripture all week, then you don't need a preacher who preaches week after week or even... A teaching schedule. You can just say, hey, who has a thought that they'd like to share? Or you can do what I like to do. You can put people on the spot and say, hey, Kyle, you're up for sharing some thoughts on Psalm 103. I mentioned before how this emphasis on everyone sharing their gifts uh, makes classes and programs less necessary, since everyone shares the responsibility of preaching and teaching the gospel. And I definitely saw a collective sense of urgency for sharing Jesus with people in the week that I was there. I mentioned before going door knocking after house church worship on Sundays. They say they do that about once a month. Knocking on every door and asking folks how they're doing, asking if there's anything they can pray for, but then also inviting the people to their monthly block party Barbecue. They said this was just like an outreach thing, you know, a way to get to know your neighbors and hopefully an opportunity to get to invite them to house church worship and to come to know Jesus. There was definitely a sense among these groups that their mission field was literally right in their backyard. Inviting people to your church seems a lot more effective when you can point to the place where the church meets from their doorstep. Here's another example of this urgency for sharing Jesus. One night, we were hanging out with one of the members at their house. This was kind of like between our our session time and dinner. And then we were going to have a prayer meeting that evening. See, they pray a lot, prayer meetings. So there was kind of this downtime. And we were just hanging out at this guy named Angel's house. And somebody in the room from the church got a phone call that they just saw that kid. You know that kid? That the kid who's the, the drummer, that guy's son? I'm like, oh, yeah, 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 I know him. They said, well, hey, I just saw him down the street. And he's laying down in the grass. And it looks like he's pretty strung out on drugs interesting call. Think about it for a second. What would you do if you got that call? You're hanging out with your friends, you're relaxing, you're waiting for, you know, it's an hour or so until the prayer meeting starts and you get this call. Hey, there's a kid passed out on the grass. I might go, uh, should we call the cops? Uh, maybe we'll tell our kids that we're going to go to the other park from now on. That's park sounds like it's going downhill. That is not what they did. As soon as they got that information, they all jumped up, they went to the door. I was like, where are they going? And they said, we're going to go see if we can minister to him. They wanted to immediately reach this person and minister to them. And ministering included helping the guy get up off the ground and also telling him about Jesus. These folks ran toward the kinds of situations with unsavory, unpredictable people that I often run away from. One afternoon, our leader Rob said, okay, uh, this afternoon we're just going to go head into the projects and try to share Jesus with people. And I didn't know what that meant. And I was stressing about it over lunch. He said that, and then we had some downtime. I'm like, ooh, what, is, what does he mean? How are we going to share Jesus with people? Are we going to be like handing out pamphlets? Maybe I'll whip out my Church of Christ four-part harmony and sing some Jesus songs on the corner until everybody's baptized. What's this going to look like, Rob? Well, as it turned out, I was overthinking it. What Rob had in mind was exactly what he said. It was simply knocking on people's doors and telling them about Jesus. That was what he sent us out to do. And I have to admit, I kinda had a chip on my shoulder about door knocking evangelism. You know, cause we've outsmarted that, right? That's old school. Nobody listens to door knockers anymore. It's not effective. Why are we gonna waste our time doing it? Anyway, that was my attitude, I confess. But, but okay, we're here to do what they do. Let's go and do this. So. We drive up to this really shady area, and we get out of the car, and this is all the training we get. Rob says, okay, uh, take a paper Bible with you. That way they won't think you're a cop. Gulp. And then the second thing he said was, you know what? If someone tries to take something from you, like your wallet or your phone, just let them have it. It's better to let them take it, and it's not worth getting hurt or killed over. All right, go share Jesus. (laughs) And then he divided us into two groups, and he wasn't even in the group that I got to be part of. So that's it. We went door to door in Potrero Hill, stepping, literally stepping over drug needles on the walkway, knocking on people's iron screen doors, listening to these large dogs barking behind them, and just wondering how close the gunshots were that we could hear in the distance. And we asked people if they knew that God loved them and that Jesus died for them. And you would think that a couple of seminary trained preachers would come up with plenty of things to say. But I have to admit, I had a really hard time communicating something that is so central to my life without my lapel mic and my podium and my sermon notes. Pulpit preaching, man, I got this. Street preaching, I was way out of practice. And it was very convicting and eye-opening afternoon. Fortunately, no one tried to take anything from me. I didn't get shot, but uh, not trying to take anything from me includes the gospel message. People were not terribly receptive, but we did get to pray with a few folks. And it was a really memorable experience. I left that week feeling the way that some of you might feel after leaving a conference like Harbor. Or after visiting a relative's church that is maybe larger, has more resources than yours. See if this sounds familiar. First, you're inspired. You're like, Yes! and you want to take all their good ideas home and you want to apply them immediately. That's how I always get so jazzed on the ride back home from a place. My head is swimming with all these new plans for new methods and buckling down and doing some awesome new ministry. And then you get back and you try to share the vision with others and they go, oh, man, it sounds neat. Now, listen, I need to get your opinion on these new worship slides. And you just kind of get deflated and go, oh, that's, uh oh. They don't catch the same vision. And that's because they weren't there. They didn't visit Potrero Hill or do the spaghetti versus steak exercise. We are church's zeal for discipleship and sharing Jesus with anyone and everyone hadn't rubbed off on them because they weren't there. That was about three years ago now. Tri-Valley Church of Christ, I will tell you, did not become a network of house churches. And I knew that we weren't going to. That's not why I went to visit. But I did learn a lot. I was convicted of a lot. And some of the things that I saw and learned have informed some of the good things that have happened in my church since then. I just want to tell you maybe three or four of them now. Uh, I did share some of their literature with my elders. I brought back their their 10 practices and shared some of those stories. And in the following weeks, uh, the content that I got from We Are Church was helpful. I used it in our elders meeting devotionals. I shared their list of 10 practices and we did the spaghetti versus steak exercise together. Uh, And once Letters to the Church, the book, came out, I bought a copy for all of our elders, deacons, ministry leaders, and we all read and discussed it together. So if nothing else, at least we have a lot of the same language and reference points. I kind of brought them in on some of that that we could use. But I realized I really should have taken my youth minister, Justin, with me. Or I should have taken Rod or Bill, two of our elders. And this is something that is stuck with me and I want to pass on to you. Whenever possible, take someone else or take everyone else from your leadership team with you. I'm friends with a lot of pastors and we all go to the same conferences and we hear a lot of the same speakers and authors and Christian leadership taste makers, And then we go back home and we try to communicate what we learned, but it loses its punch because you can't quite explain it as well as you experienced it. It's like when you try to tell someone else your dream. You're excited because you're reliving an experience, but they just smile politely because they can understand what you're saying, but it didn't impact them at all. Or sometimes this happens. You go back and you talk about how great we are churches. You talk about how great your sister's church is. And your leaders now feel threatened because of the way you're praising this other group. It sounds like you're bagging on your own church family. And so be very careful not to seem unappreciative or disappointed with the church that, after all, chose you, loved you, and supported you, and the church that probably sent you to this conference in the first place. Anyway, sharing what I'd learned led to a renewed focus on the need for discipleship and a church where people are in real relationships with one another. Our small groups ministry had kind of been dead in the water for a few years, and the conversations that came after my week in San Francisco eventually led to a new series of home groups, uh, which each one of our elders was involved. I was really proud of them for catching that vision and saying, yes, we need to connect with these members over meals, on couches, in homes, spending time in prayer. This was a really positive outcome that came from it. Another thing that we started doing was bringing the congregation together with our scriptural studies. No, I'll tell you, I did not stop preaching or put people on the spot on Sundays to provide our weekly lessons. I think I like preaching a little too much to do that. Uh, it's, It's good spaghetti. But I did make an effort in the following months to get folks reading and studying the same parts of scripture at the same time. I started a series through the book of Ephesians and I coordinated with a long-standing Thursday night Bible study asking them, like, hey, I'm going to do Ephesians. You guys want to do it along with me? And this group was really into prayer journaling. They take certain passages of scripture and every week they write out a response prayer. And I said, you guys are looking at scripture anyway. Can you use my sermon texts for the week for your journaling passages? And they said, yeah, that sounds good. They aligned with me. They agreed to do it. And they've been making the sermon passage from Sundays their scripture prompt for their journaling ever since. It's been, I don't know, a year and a half, a couple years now, and that's been really good. I also coordinated better with Justin, my youth minister, to have the teens Wednesday night youth group devotional use Ephesians while I was doing that series. Uh, Each week, they would just take the passage that I preached on that previous Sunday, and they would interact with it using discussion questions. And some of you guys might be thinking, Jacob, that's not anything new. You're not reinventing the wheel by any means, and you, you may have been doing that The whole time. Maybe that's what I should have been doing. But we weren't doing it. And it was a chance for me to remedy the scriptural segregation that we'd been doing in order to go deep into God's word together. And that's been a blessing in our congregation. And finally, I was very much impressed and inspired by the way that so many of the We Are Church people lived how it was centered on being others-focused and sacrificial. Again, think of these people jumping off their couches to go help a guy on drugs, who might need a lot of help and a lot of work, they were preparing themselves to provide long-term solutions for people, and they saw it as an opportunity for discipleship. You've probably heard this math equation. If you meet with someone for discipleship once a week, say you meet up for coffee at a coffee shop, then that's 52 hours a year if you meet every week. You can get the same amount of time with someone who lives with you in just one week, or then you can untypical discipleship in a year. That makes a very strong case for inviting people to share as much of your life as you can. Well, that math equation and that idea stuck with me. And then an interesting opportunity came up within days of my experience in San Francisco. I got a call from somebody that I knew uh, who'd moved out of state, lived in a different place now, but whose 20-year-old son was moving back to the area and needed a place to live. Now, these kinds of requests, I always want the church to step up and say, sure, he can say with me, I'm happy to help, and I'll disciple him, and I'll use my blessings to be a blessing to this family. And so I usually put it out there, and often I get crickets. I have to be careful not to be cynical when this happens, because there's a lot of people in our church who go to sleep each night on one of several beds in their house. A lot of empty beds when they turn off their lights live in a big house, a lot of empty nesters. And I want them to think of their home the way that we, our church, thinks of their homes. But i got to remember, I can't make people's decisions for them. But I can lead by example. Anyway, I couldn't find a place for this young man to live. But I told my wife about it, and she pointed out, this is something you said you really wanted to do more of. Should we take him in? Should we do this? And I thought, ugh. And we do have a guest bedroom, so that's not an excuse we can use. And then I was cursing, I knew I shouldn't have married such a Christ-like woman. Ah, why did you have to say that, Lisa? And on top of it all, my wife had just had a baby 6 weeks earlier. Yes, we have a guest room, but the rest of our house is full of 3 kids now. We had lots of reasons not to take in this young guy. But we ended up saying yes, and he lived with us rent-free, ate our food, played with our kids. For the next five months. And we loved him. And we cared for him like he was one of our own kids. And then I discipled that young man. And he went on to plant 50 churches in Seattle, Washington. One of the most unchurched areas of the country. Yes! Big win for Jacob. Okay, not really. That's not exactly what happened. (laughs) He did live with us, but the rest of that stuff, uh, not so much. And that brings us to the last thing that I want to share with you. Uh, a word of advice a bit of warning and kind of uh, word, word to just get you to let go a little bit whenever you encounter a group like We Are Church or you read a book by Francis Chan or David Platt or Shane Claiborne Jen Hatmaker or whoever you need to give yourself a break if the things that you read about things that you see in somebody else's ministry if they inspire you good if they convict you good if what you learn leaves to positive change in yourself or your ministry, that is great. But if they make you feel bad about yourself or your ministry or your church, you need to give yourself a break. Don't compare the worst, your worst, with someone else's best. Just because someone makes a compilation of their successes doesn't mean they don't have failures. In my time with We Are Church, we got to ask them, about how well the model actually works. And they said what could also be said about whatever you're doing in your church. When it works, it's great, but it doesn't always work. And it has its ups and downs just like everyone else. I heard stories that week about people leaving because their expectations were too high. Not everyone could live the way that that Francis Chan was prescribing. And I heard stories that week about house churches that became so clicky that they refused To multiply in December, when the year came to an end, even though they knew in January and they'd committed to multiplying, they just weren't willing to do it. I heard stories about people who loved what they were doing but had a really hard time losing the Sunday church experience they'd known all their lives, the big stage, the big sermon, the big worship. And I heard stories of house churches really struggling with what to do with kids during their worship gathering. Remember, no childcare, no children's minister, no puppet ministry. Sean Brakey, one of our We Are Church guides, even said, we want you to know that we don't think this is the only way of doing church. We think it's better than the churches that we all came from because it's being intentional about giving God steak instead of spaghetti, but it's not the only way. Please keep that in mind and they were really cool about the reason we're opening this up to so many people is because we want feedback we want people to say yes this can work in my context or no this part can't work so it was really kind of a collaborative effort rather than a hey we have it figured out you need to subscribe to our newsletter and even as i was listing some of the successful ways that we incorporated we are church's principles at my church just now in this talk i realized that i was omitting some things Like some of the frustrations that I experienced along the way. Some of the false starts. Some of the folks who just don't get it and probably won't ever get it. But those folks are all there. Those are just the... When you write the book, you you kind of omit those things. But I want you to remember that those are there. In my experience, in Chan's experience, in your experience, they're there in every church that is dedicating itself to doing the Lord's work. There's going to be these ups and downs. So give yourself a break. I remember my old preaching professor, Ken Durham, said that he kept a filing system of sermon ideas and illustrations. It was like a literal physical filing cabinet and like an index card system. If he came across a good image or an interesting factoid or a quote from an article, he would write it down on a card and he'd put it in a filing cabinet. And he had all these files alphabetized and arranged by category Nowadays, you can do that digitally. So Ken probably (laughs) had a student assistant transfer that to digital, put in the cloud at some point. So hopefully he's not lugging around a big file cabinet. Maybe he is. Uh, But he also said that he kept an index card in his front pocket where he would write down any good words when he heard them. Or if he read them in a book, just like a good word that I want to make sure to use in my sermon. And he took the card out and he read it for us. I remember one of the words on his card was sizzle. He's like, isn't that a great word, you guys? Sizzle. I got to use that in a sermon. (laughs) Well, think about that. I would suggest, in the same way, that you take what you learn at a conference, uh, any ministry ideas that you read or things that you see other people doing that work for them, and just file them away. Put them in the file. Hold on to them. Remember them. And when it's the right time, use them. Or they might help you out. Reference them. But don't... Try to do them all at once. And don't think that all of them need to be used at all. Imagine if Ken Durham preached a sermon that contained all of his sermon illustrations from his file. Or all of his sizzly words. That would be exhausting. And it probably wouldn't work. So give yourself a break. And use your experiences wisely. And if you've listened to this talk all the way up to this point, you win. Congratulations. And uh, thank you very much. I like you. You're a good person. Uh, If you've listened this far, you're probably Justin or Kyle or my mom. But if you're not one of those people, (laughs) then uh, send me a text or something. Let me know that you tuned in. Give me any thoughts that you might have or if you want to continue the conversation, absolutely. Let me go. I'll send you a list of good preaching words or something. My cell number is 360-931-0002. It's easy to remember because uh, it's 360, like a circle, 360 degrees. So think of a circle. And then 931, like the division, uh, 9 divided by 3. Divided by 3 again, you can only do that with two one-digit numbers, or maybe 3. Anyway, circle, division. And then the last one to remember is corn dog, uh, 0002, the number of corn dogs I like to eat. In one sitting. So, Circle 360, Division 931, Corndog 0002. Uh, Thanks for listening. Let me pray for you and your ministry and God's work in your life. God, I thank you for the experiences that I get to have. Things that you placed in our path. Uh, The information and the way that we can communicate and learn so much from so many people. Just a few generations back, we didn't even have this. And so it can be overwhelming. But help us to use it wisely. Help us to navigate it well. And help us to faithfully share good, useful, and effective ministry ideas with one another. I pray for anybody who's listening. I pray that if they're frustrated, they'll turn those frustrations over to you. And they'll just think of all the people in scripture who were frustrated that things weren't happening a certain way. That they weren't getting the answers that they were asking for. Or that uh, didn't seem like the effort they were putting in was yielding the results that they hoped for and expected. Um, God, just give us your peace. Give us a good night's sleep. Give us renewed faith and trust in you and be reminded that you work in your time and you're working way more than we are. And sometimes the efforts that we make are just messing things up. So Lord, work through us and work in spite of us and help us to see when we need to stand out of your way so that your spirit can work. But we do pray that Lord, that your spirit will work among us in our churches, that new people will say yes to Jesus Christ, that you will restore our spirits and our zeal for doing kingdom work pray a blessing on We Are Church and the people who are in San Francisco doing good works, uh, rehabilitating people, working with people who are in high-risk situations and dangerous and putting themselves out there. And I just pray that they're successful uh, advancing your kingdom. And uh, we, we just love you, Lord, the ways that you, you work and the reminders that you give us. And I pray that this is one that will just remind us to, to trust in you more. And, um, yeah, I pray for your kingdom, and I pray for your church. And I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.